spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Just like a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, we are going to be far from home here in a couple weeks. It's episode 272 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Of course, I'm talking about the fact that we'll be I'll be in San Diego Comic-Con 2019, the 50th anniversary of San Diego Comic-Con, going to San Diego here in a couple weeks. So to get you back in that con vibe, I thought I would go back to when I was at WonderCon. And this one I've been holding on to for a reason, because the magicians, Alice's story is coming out from Boom Studios, and you know that's written. By Lila Sturgis, of course, Lila Sturgis also of Lumberjanes. We'll talk to her about her work on both and some other stuff, too, as well, that I think you'll find really interesting. Plus, of course, my spoiler-filled review of Spider-Man Far From Home is going to be this week. Can't wait to talk about the return of Winona Earp. There will be a season for Earpers. Can't wait to dive into that. How about we talk, talk about some comics first? It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Greg Rucka, comic book writer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're going the high-tech route of the tablet or the laptop, or you decide to go low-tech and slide out that long box, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And this is a book that I've been waiting for, for what seems like an eternity. It's Lois Lane, number one from DC, written by Greg Rucka, Mike Perkins doing the art, Paul Mounts on the colors, and Simon Bolin on the letters. Now, right off the bat, we get to see a lot about what it would be like to be Lois Lane, the reporter. And I love that, like seeing her process, seeing what she'll do for a story, seeing how she goes about her sources and things like that, and how she interacts with Perry White. And just the, the back and forth between them in the beginning of this book, it just seems so real and authentic. It, it, it almost looked like I was watching a biopic of Lois Lane. When I was reading this book, in the, especially in the early going. So I really, really did love that. You will also see some very some familiar subject matter to current events in this issue that are going on here in the country. I won't dive too deep into that, but things will seem quite familiar if you read this book. So I will tell you that that is something that you're going to experience for sure. Now, we do have another story going on here, too, that Lois is trying to find out what happened to a fellow journalist that she may or may not have gotten along with. I won't spoil that for you. Now, we also get to see a little bit about her relationship with Clark. That's really not a focus of this story, though, and at least not in the early going. We do get to see a little bit of that and how that can cause some problems for her, actually, in her life. And if you've been reading a lot of the Superman stories, you know there's more to their relationship right now. I won't spoil whether or not they get into that, but it is brought up. In this book, but again, this is not really a focus of the story. The focus is more on Lois doing her job and how well she does it and just how strong she is and how much she just has such a commanding presence no matter where she is and what she's doing. And that's the crazy thing. She could just be walking down the sidewalk and she just has this commanding presence. She could just be she could be doing her job and she just stands out so much. With her strength, it's unbelievable. It's like you look at Lois Lane and you'd be like, I want my daughter to be like Lois Lane someday for so many reasons. And you look at the art in this book as well. It really has that 
traditional feel to me. I feel like I'm going back in time a little bit with the art, but having such a modern story to go with it. So the way those things contrasted each other really, really brought things home for me. And there is some amazing, both the covers for this book, by the way, are amazing too, by the way, even the variants. So if, I mean, I, I'm thinking the variant for me, especially if they have those at San Diego Comic-Con, I'm going to be grabbing the variant of Lois Lane, number one for sure, because it is absolutely amazing. Jenny Frizen, I believe, are, does the art on that. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Twitter, I'm sure you will. So this is a poll for me. I, I, this is when I would have added pre-read to my poll box anyway. That's how much I was looking forward to it. And that's why I thought maybe I'm building this up too much in my mind. I really wasn't. This book was everything I was hoping it would be. And the focus that was put on there, really, really love what Rucka and company are doing here. Decided to do something maybe a little bit different. Go back to Image Comics this week for Sea of Stars number one. And when you see Jason Aaron on a book, that certainly attracts some attention. Dennis Hallam writing this along with him, as a matter of fact. Stephen Green on the art. Rico Renzi on the colors. And Jared K. Fletcher on the letters and designs for this book, by the way. Now, we're following a nine-year-old boy named Caden who's on what he describes, anyway, as a born trip through space with his dad, Gil Starks. Now, it turns out he's like a galactic mailman or UPS guy or something like that, or long-haul trucker. It's really hard to tell, but it's kind of interesting. That's exactly the vibe I got from him, anyway. I'd be interested to see if you got the same vibe when you read this. Now, things get pretty not boring, very, very quickly, something appears that changes the entire focus of the story in a real hurry. And, and the relationship between Caden and his dad, too, by the way. And kind of what we end up with, and I don't do spoilers on this show, but maybe this is a little bit of a minor spoiler in how I'm going to describe how I felt like this was for me. So just skip ahead a little bit if you don't want this book spoiled for you in maybe just a minor way. To me, I felt like we, we kind of ended up with, in a way, was finding Nemo in space with humans instead of fish, but some other very interesting characters that are not human along the way. Now, that is not a slight in the slightest. It's a very much a compliment and that it's not exactly finding Nemo. It's, it's, it's certainly very different, but there are some vibes there as well that gave me that. And to me, the art and the character designs, too, are pretty unique in this book, and it's not your standard outer space cookie-cutter type of characters. It, it had a uniqueness to it, and very much in the way that Finding Nemo did, even though we're dealing with fish here, we still had very unique designs of the characters that made you go, okay, so we are stepping outside of the norm a little bit here. And, you know, we've read, you've seen a million space comics, read a million space stories, and seen a million sci-fi space movies, right? This just didn't feel the same to me. It felt like it was a little bit different. And you've, and Caden, at, at nine years old, has just this infectious personality. And he's said, as, as someone who has a son, it's one of those things where it's like, God, you can't not love that kid, right? Even when he's doing something wrong, you got to love the kid. That's how you kind of feel about Caden anyway. You know, getting into trouble just enough to make it interesting sort of thing, but has such this sweet soul about him. So I really loved that character right away. This book also, to me, had a lesson that you kind of don't know how strong a bond really is until it's been broken and how you can kind of take certain things for granted a little bit. 
and I maybe I'm reading that wrong, but I kind of got a little bit of a vibe of that when I was reading this book. And and I just had such a good feeling about this story after I was done reading it. And yeah, I wanted the next issue quickly because I need to know what happens now because yeah, I'm invested in these characters now. I'm invested in this dynamic and now we've only seen a small glimpse of the kind of stuff that's out there in the universe. I want to see what else can be created by this creative team too as well. So I'm going to put this in the pull box too. It's, uh, this was one kind of caught me off guard as, as being really, really fun and interesting. So we've got, of course, Lois Lane, number one. You're going to want to read that. And then when you're done with that, Sea of Stars, number one from Image Comics. Of course, Lois Lane being from DC. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, time to head over to Europe and talk about Spider-Man Far From Home. Spoilers on the way next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book creator Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. If you still get choked up every time you think about Tony Stark, make sure you bring the Kleenex to Spider-Man Far From Home. That's right, my spoiler-filled review of the new Spider-Man movie from Sony and Marvel Studios is here now. So yeah, spoilers from here on out until my review of Spider-Man is over. And this is not a recap. I'm not going to go through every scene of the movie or anything like that, but I am going to give you my impressions of the movie as a whole. And now, I I did not think, by the way, this was better than Homecoming. I know that some fans are saying that, and I I guess I can understand why you would think that, because I do think the villain is better in Far From Home, but overall, I just loved the Peter Parker and Tom Holland's Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man story of Homecoming. It almost makes you like fall in love with the character of Spider-Man all over again, even though we'd seen him in a previous movie. This was like, okay, this is what Spider-Man was supposed to be like. I'm not even saying I didn't like the Andrew Garfield era of Spider-Man. I liked the first movie, but this was almost like, a okay, that's right. This is what Spider-Man's supposed to feel like sort of movie. So I guess because I've got that kind of feeling about Homecoming, I couldn't put Far From Home above that. But what this movie really deals with, and I think that this was interesting, especially in the aftermath of Endgame, is the burden of a teenager now becoming a high-profile superhero and carrying all the weight that goes along with that. Suddenly, all eyes are on this high school-age kid who just wants to hang out with his friends and, you know, try and, you know, date the girl that he really likes and get her attention, just like a normal teenager would be. But not being given the opportunity to be a normal teenager because of who he is now as Spider-Man. And he's not really dealing with that well. We see him early on when they're doing the donations for people that were affected by the blip. That's what they're calling the dusting, by the way, of Thanos. They're calling it the blip. And that's for, for people that were gone. So we see him at a fundraiser that Aunt May's doing. And you've got people asking him questions, and there's camera flashbulbs going on there, and he's a little bit overwhelmed, almost like a paparazzi type of situation, and he's not dealing with it well. And then all of a sudden, Nick Fury wants to talk to him. He's not dealing with that well, and he actually tries to avoid Nick Fury for the longest time. And even when he gets into what's going on with the elementals and things like that while he's on his trip over there in Europe and everything that's going on with Mysterio... You can even see that he just wants, he's not sure he's ready for this. And it you top that off with the fact that 
Tony Stark has seemingly made him the heir apparent, it seems like. So there's pressure there as well to be one of the greatest Avengers of all time because Tony Stark, one of the founding members of the Avengers, said that you you know, you know were the chosen one. And in a way, what's funny about that is, too, is you've there's been other chosen one stories here before. This is kind of a little bit more of an unconventional one. But this is almost like what the Star Wars prequels should have been for Anakin, right? And now follow me on this because this is a little bit of a tangent that I that I don't want to get on for too long, but follow me on this a little bit here. Because you do know that Anakin's still, Anakin's still going to become Darth Vader, right? But instead of going the spoiled brat, I'm the chosen one route where he kind of is easily manipulated by Palpatine, you could have gone the he's overwhelmed route and could have been then manipulated again by Palpatine because we see Spider-Man Peter Parker be manipulated by Mysterio throughout this entire movie. I mean, he hands over these basically control of everything that every defense system in Stark Industries has. He just hands it over to Mysterio saying, I can't deal with this responsibility, so you should be the next Iron Man because I can't be the next Iron Man. And I facepalmed when he did that, but I'm like, that's the beauty of a character like Mysterio and that he manipulated him into doing that. So it shows you that in this Chosen One story, there was another there was another way that that could have gone because that story was not cemented in stone, remember, when it was told from the Star Wars perspective. There was another way that could have been told. And if it would have been done this way, you could have seen also where he would have drawn his strength from, like, I'm not going to be that scared kid anymore. They could have done it that way, and then that's why Darth Vader ends up being such a badass because he looked back on what he was and he didn't want to be that anymore. And maybe there was a little bit of that scared kid in there too but the way that they presented it with Tom Holland just being overwhelmed and not ready and now suddenly being in the shadow of this great figure and Tony Stark and Iron Man and he's like I can't deal with this and it led him to play right into the villain's hands and by you know association everybody else too by the way kind of fell for this so it wasn't just Peter Parker so I just thought that, that was an interesting little parallel that 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 made me, it made me think of that when I was watching the movie, but speaking of Mysterio, Jake Gyllenhaal did such a fantastic job as Mysterio. I maybe I don't think we kind of saw him enough in the movie. I could have done a little bit more of him, but when they make that reveal, you you know, they almost make you believe, right, that they're going to hero him up in this movie, that he actually is going to be a hero and they're never going to turn him. Right? They actually make you think for a second that that's what's going to happen. But if you're a comic book fan at all, you know Mysterio, ultimate con artist, right? So you know he's not telling the truth, but they really, really make you believe like he is to the point where I'm going, they're really not going to hero him up, are they? They're not going to do this whole anti-hero thing, are they? And they really don't. And then he makes that speech about how Tony Stark fired him and and this is how this is how he decided that he was going to take the world for himself and he was going to be the next great thing. He was going to be the next Iron Man. He was, it was going to be some booze hound that was going to be the center of attention. It was going to be him because he made, he was made a laughing stock of his life's work. And while that is a, maybe a predictable route to go. And that is a, well, we've seen that before sort of thing. 
and and it kind of was, but the way he they he delivered that speech and hammered it home, and by the way, gathered up a whole bunch of other people that felt the same way about Tony Stark, quote unquote ordinary everyday people that just happened to have specialties that could help him. That is what a master manipulator does, thinking ten steps ahead, thinking out every single scenario and playing it out perfectly to be able to execute the end game no pun intended there, that he wants. And it really was masterful. And then you get to see how much he can weave these illusions, right? Like when Spider-Man, when Peter finally figures it out and he goes to face off with Mysterio for the first time and try and track everything down and try and go to Fury and tell him what's going on, then you see that fight where it's illusion after illusion after illusion and you just see Spider-Man thrown through a loop. You can't... Um, like mentally catches balance and that was an amazing sequence in this movie and and almost to the point where you're like how the hell is spider-man this kid gonna be able to deal with this how is he gonna take that on and then of course we see him sort of grow up throughout that process and really learn how to defeat a villain like mysterio i even love the fact that at one point he runs out of the web shooters right so then you're thinking, okay, well, now what's he going to do? But then he finds a way to sort of combat him without web shooters as well. And I love the fact, too, that this movie did the whole, you know, the, the hero always gets unlimited ammo, it seems like, right? It never seems to be an issue, and it was in this movie. And I loved that. It's like, okay, so he's out of web shooters. Now what does he do? So you get to see another aspect of how Spider-Man, without his tech, without his toys, can still get the job done. Now, that's a huge part of who Spider-Man is, right? Just like Batman has his tools that he uses, right? It's a huge part of the character, so you're never going to take that away, but you know, like, Batman can handle himself if he doesn't have his utility belt, right? I know that's not as much of a thing anymore, but you you get what I'm saying. But if he doesn't have his toys, he can still handle himself. You see Spider-Man be able to do the same exact thing in this movie. So for my money, Mysterio was one of the best... Marvel's Cinematic Universe villains ever. I'm not saying he's better than Thanos. So don't even don't yell at me on that. Maybe you've got Killmonger ahead of him. I'd understand that as well. Maybe you've even got, if you would consider Winter Soldier a, a true villain, at least in the beginning, I could see you going there. He's top five for me, easy Mysterio. I, I don't know I don't know where I'd rank him because I don't like to do the ranking thing. I don't like the whole list thing, but I would definitely put him in my top five somewhere. I just think Jake Gyllenhaal was that good. The, the The lie was so good, and the way that they played it out was so fantastic. And that reveal where he's like, well, I guess it's time. Finally, I got what I wanted. I loved that reveal and how his mood changed. Like, oh, complete 180 in an instant. I loved that. So it was almost like Jake Gyllenhaal was playing two different characters in this movie. Now, it wasn't all good. And I maybe you're going to get mad at me for this. I don't know. But to me, it was like there were plenty of times where this movie was trying way too hard to be funny. And, and maybe you laughed throughout. And I certainly laughed plenty of times too. And I know that this movie needed to be funny because it's still Spider-Man it's supposed to be a little bit more lighthearted right so yeah there should be some funny moments in it but like the whole ghosting Nick Fury joke I thought they leaned into that a little bit too much I thought they leaned into too much of the humor with Ned and his girlfriend and trying to make that funny 
And while it was, you know, it was cute and funny at times, it was like, okay, we don't really need to be doing this anymore. And and then they've also got the whole, even Nick Fury tries to be a little bit over the top at times. And I was, I'm like, no, no, let's not do that. So I thought that there were some genuine humor humor moments that did work. And most of them had to do with MJ, who I really love this different version of MJ. I know that not everybody does. But for some reason, Zendaya's MJ just really works for me. It really, really does. It's just like this, this sarcastic and a little bit dark and edgy MJ. And when she picks up that mace and smashes that drone, I'm like, yeah, that's my MJ right there. Getting her hands dirty. I love that. So they may, but but still, then they start to see that rough exterior crack a little bit once she starts to reveal her feelings for Peter. And you kind of see how they're made for each other. A little bit right and that's how you should feel about MJ and Peter Parker that they're made for each other and you get that vibe or at least I did in this movie so their moments I liked I love John Favreau's Happy Hogan too love that and I, yeah I also think they leaned on the hit the whole he and Aunt May being maybe dating maybe not dating thing the humor in that I thought they leaned into that a little bit too much too but there were some genuine funny moments in that as well and I love that Happy was there to save Peter too, right? Peter could have made, could have called anybody when he picked up that phone. He called Happy. And I thought that that was really, really neat and cemented their relationship. And, and then Happy sees Peter working on the suit and he gets those Tony vibes, right? And that's when, the, that's when you started to feel the, the tears start to well up a little bit. You know, the lump in the throat sort of thing. At least I did anyway. I'm like, no, don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. It was like a proud dad moment. And maybe he ends up being his dad at some point, his stepdad. I don't know. We won't go there. But, I mean, yeah, the movie did try a little bit too hard to be funny. And, yeah, maybe there were some predictable moments. But if you, like, if you weren't deep into the comic book story of Mysterio, then maybe it wasn't as predictable for you. That you didn't really necessarily know that turn was going to happen. You're like, oh, okay, so that's who Mysterio is all about. And there there were a couple of other things too, like the guy that was trying to get with MJ instead of Peter and, you know, kind of being the douchebag sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I could have done without that. I'm not sure that that really added, added to the story at all. It was almost kind of better watching Peter just fumble all over himself, trying to get MJ's attention than anything else. So, but but I think the the, the gold star of this movie was the struggle of Peter Parker to be that next big thing, to be the chosen one, be Spider-Man. And then he realizes that he just needs to be Spider-Man. He just needs to be his own guy and do his thing. And that will be enough. Tony believed in him for a reason. And that was it because he was going to be himself and he's smart and he knows what he's doing. But before I wrap this up, this might've been the most significant mid credit scene in a long time where we get to see that, you know, like message from Mysterio right before the end, right? Where he says, where he makes it look like Spider-Man orders the drone attack, right? And then he reveals to everyone that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. And I did not see that coming. And then first of all, when J.K. Simmons popped up on the screen, I almost jumped up and fanboyed right there in the theater. I could not believe they got him to come back and do that. I loved that so much. I don't care if it's fan service. It was great friggin' fan service, okay? 
That that moment almost made the entire movie for me. I'm not lying at all. That I loved that. So that was a great way to end it out. And, and I thought that, that was a very significant development because then where, now where do you go with Spider-Man? Where do you go with him in any Marvel movie? Never mind his next movie. Where do you? Where does that go? And how does that play out going forward? Especially with Flash Thompson being such a Spider-Man fan, right now he's going to find out that the guy he would call Dick Wad is now Spider-Man. So how does that change their relationship? There's just so many ways to go about this, and I, I'm, I'm I don't really give ratings when I do these reviews anymore. I de- I really did enjoy Spider-Man: Far From Home. And I definitely do think you should go see it, especially if you love Spider-Man. Tom Holland just does such a fantastic job at being both Peter Parker and Spider-Man. It's a good cast. It's a fun movie. Don't overthink it, and you will enjoy Spider-Man Far From Home. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Spider-Man Far From Home. Up next, Winona Earp is back, and I can't wait to talk about it. Nerd news coming at you on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Emily Andrus. I'm the showrunner and executive producer of Wine on Earth TV series, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The fight for purgatory has been won. It is time for nerd news, and I was so happy to see this news this week, and I don't think there's anything bigger. I know that there's been some huge stories this week. I'm going to talk about this one first, the fact that, yep, Winona Earp is going to be getting a fourth season on sci-fi vulture was first to break the news and of course confirmed by showrunner emily andras on twitter after that with a just a fantastic tweet from erpers i won't read it for you you've either already seen it or i'll let you go ahead and go on twitter and see that but ah, oh, here's the details let's start with that first so apparently filming is going to be starting or at least production is going to start in the fall of this year, filming set to begin just around the beginning of 2020, and then they're looking at a summer 2020 release date. Now, as if that's not enough, San Diego Comic-Con, here we go. That's right, the show is going to be coming for a big celebration at San Diego Comic-Con of, of season the season four happening on Sci-Fi, and it's going to be on Saturday 5 o'clock to 5.50, Indigo Ballroom. That is, of course, in the Hilton Bayfront. If you are going to San Diego Comic-Con, you already know that. But I don't know when you're going to have to line up for that thing because I think this is going to be a huge celebration because, I mean, I talked to Tim Roseland about this not too long ago. I've talked to Erpers. I've talked to so many that are involved in this fight. I, we were in the fight as well. I mean, there's it's, it's funny. It's the way Emily Andros described it that I think was really great where she said, that Erpers, quote, never lost your polite yet fierce no chill. That describes Erpers so well because you sit in a room of Erpers and you just want to talk Erp with them. That's love right there. There's so much love, not just for the fans of the show, but for the fans to the cast, the cast to the fans, the cast with each other, the cast with these characters, by the way. There's just so much love that surrounds this show. How can this not be? This is one of those shows you want to just go on forever because there's just so much love surrounding it. And not not to mention the fact that we had that huge cliffhanger at the end of last season and we have Valdez on the way for season four. Yeah, I this this show couldn't end with season three. And this just goes to show you that sometimes you fight and you win, right? We've taken a couple of losses recently. You know, the tick couldn't save that. We also couldn't say, you know, we know that Lucifer's going to only one run for one more season. There's just some shows that could not be saved recently. Deadly Class is another one. This is one of those cases where the passion of the Erpers can absolutely not be denied 
and the show is going to be coming back. And it just happens to be a really good show, too, by the way. There's so many reasons why this show should keep going. But how about the fact that it's just a good show and it just lives on its own terms and it always has. And I love the fact that Winona Earp has never been afraid to be exactly what it is and the fans love them for it. And this is how, you know, I say a lot that, you know, it's really important to bring in fans that weren't fans before or that weren't fans of the original source material. But I feel like Winona Earp has brought so many fans that didn't know about the source material and familiarized themselves with the source material and now they're going back and absorbing that as well. It's it's funny that how this is one of those instances where it's kind of worked in reverse. And I love that. And I know fans of the Wine Owner Herb comic have been fans of the show too, but this show just goes to show you that sometimes there are exceptions to the rules, and Erper, Erpers, you've always been those exceptions to those rules. Here's something coming to TV that I think is going to be very, very interesting, and that is Sandman. That's right, Neil Gaiman's classic Sandman is coming to TV. It was first reported by a Hollywood reporter and then confirmed by Gaiman himself, on Twitter that Sandman is coming to Netflix from Warner Brothers Television. We don't know a whole lot beyond that, unfortunately. We do know that the rumors were saying that HBO was a possible spot for this before networks went ahead and grabbed it. I mean, excuse me, Netflix went ahead and grabbed it. We also know that Alan Heinberg will be set to write and serve as showrunner alongside with Gaiman. Apparently David Goyer is going to be involved as well. But think about it. Sandman has really been a long time coming, and I know that fans are still a little like, well, I don't know exactly what's going to happen here, because, I mean, New Line's been trying to make this movie forever, almost like the last 20 years, right? It seems like off and on they've been trying to make this movie, and now we know that it's finally going to be coming to Netflix. There's also apparently going to be a huge price tag for this show, most expensive show that Warner Brothers Television has done reportedly or will be doing reportedly so you know you kind of can't argue with that right especially if this is going to be live action and it looks like it is matter of fact Gaiman said in a tweet and I'm going to paraphrase this here that it will have 11 episodes Gaiman's going to be involved he's going to be part of the writing process we're going to get some preludes and nocturnes and more is one of the things that Gaiman said now here's the problem with this though and I'm not saying I don't want this. Don't get me wrong. And I know some people have said, oh, well, I guess this is why Netflix doesn't want to continue with Lucifer, huh? No, I don't think we can make that leap. I mean, I understand why, why, we'd, why you'd say that, but I don't know that we can really make that leap just yet. I mean, I, I don't see how the two things are really related, even though they are both they are both Warner Brothers properties. Let's put it that way. But the, the producers of Lucifer said, look, we're going to wrap this up. This is the way it's going to end. We're, we're okay with this. So, I mean, they'd fight, trust me. The producers and fans of Lucifer, they'd fight for it if they didn't know that this was a good stopping point for the show. So I'm not going to go there. But what I will, what I will say is, and, and I will make the argument that I just made a second ago, but in reverse, and, and that's Sandman has always been one of those things where it's inspired so many other creators, and Neil Gaiman's done a fantastic job of that, and he's a fantastic writer, and he knows how to go outside of that box, and I love him for that. But at the same time, if we're being honest, Sandman can be a little hard to follow, right? Am I wrong here? I mean, this is not something that's for everybody, and this is something that you're either going to, I believe you're either going to get it, or you're not going to get it. And that's the thing about Netflix. And that it's a good thing that all these episodes are going to come out at the same time. That's all I'm saying. 
This is not a show you want to air an episode and then another episode and somebody go, well, I don't get it, I'm out. Because and at least on Netflix, you can go, okay, you're going to just binge through this thing and see what you think of it at the end of it. The binge watching is a, is a big thing on Netflix. I mean, you probably have done it with Stranger Things Season 3 already. You're probably already done. Going to talk about that not this week, but next week. So, I mean, honestly, I don't know that this is something that might... I don't know if this is going to work. I'm going to be honest right now. I don't know if this is going to work because it might be too out there. And I know that I talked last week about Legion being a little out there and, you know, maybe it'll be a little bit weird sometimes and it's hard to follow. I think that I think that Sandman can be incredibly hard to follow and, and there's so many subtleties there that you've got to pick up on. And, I mean, the characters are cool. The setting's cool. Every, I mean, it could, it, could, it could look really, really stunning. And this could be an amazing story to adapt, but that word is could. That's the problem here. And there's a reason that this thing hasn't been able to be made for 20 years. There has to be a reason for that. So, again, while this is not necessarily a 100% done deal going to happen, I mean, it seems like it's done, so I think we will get this. But at the same time, I I would not slam dunk this show by any stretch of the imagination. I just think that you better hope... You can make it so fans that weren't people that weren't fans of the source material are going to check this out. This is a risk you want run when you do something like Sandman, and I do think it's a good story. I do think that a lot of fans will love it, but I, I would just tread with caution here. That's all I'm saying. Here's something the fans have loved for quite a long time and had no idea was about to end. That's right, The Walking Dead comic book series. I want to make that perfectly clear. The Walking Dead comic book series abruptly ends with issue 193 this week. And fans were like, whoa, what What just happened? We were buying the book. What, what's the problem? What, there was no problem. Robert Kirkman and company just decided that, you know, this is where they're going to end it and didn't tell anybody. So Kirkman and Adler's a, a zombie movie that never ends. That's how it's been described, right? which was first published in 2003, is finally going to be over. And I love Kirkman's reasoning for this. And I am going to read this from from his statement where he said, I hate knowing what's coming. This is the quote. As a fan, I hate it when I realize I'm in the third act of a movie and the story's winding down. I hate that I can count on commercial breaks and knowing I'm nearing the end of a TV show. I hate it when you can feel when you're getting near the end of a book or a graphic novel. Some of the best episodes of Game of Thrones are when they're structured in such a way and placed to perfection so your brain can't tell if it's been watching for 15 minutes or 50 minutes. And when the end comes, you're stunned. And you're stunned, aren't you? You are stunned. You had no idea that this was where it was going to all end. And I think he's absolutely right. There's something to be said for in something like this saying, you know what, we're done. Sorry. And it's not like they didn't end it on a big note. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you if you haven't read any, read any of The Walking Dead recently, Rick Grimes finally dies. And that's one of those things where it's, yeah, if you're going to end it, that's a pretty good way to end it on a big shocking note like that. And maybe that is the punctuation on the story, right? That's You've followed this character for so long. Maybe this is how you finally put the punctuation on the story, is doing something like that. I don't see any wrong I don't see anything wrong with this at all. 
And he's already come out and said, you know, no no spinoffs or anything like that. This this is it. Now, the TV show's not going anywhere anytime soon. AMC's already come out and said that, like, look, we, we, we are going to continue this TV series. And, yeah, there's also going to be spinoffs. I mean, we've already got Fear of the Walking Dead. We've got, we've got possible movies and stuff coming. There's all sorts of Walking Dead-related stuff that you're going to be able to get. So I'm not saying you don't need the comics because I know you loved them. But at the same time, I think we're good, right? And to be able to end it this way in shocking fashion, it's just true Walking Dead, isn't it? it, it this is just par for the course for The Walking Dead, who's shocked us over the years, not just on the page, but on the screen as well. And I think, again, going out on your own terms, there's something to be said for that. And you want to talk about going out on your own terms, not just telling the story that Adlard and Kirkman wanted to tell, but going out the way you wanted to go out with, you know, no fanfare, no countdowns, none of that. And how much of that have we seen in recent years, where you just, you know that the end is coming, and, you know, you just maybe you don't even get the first few issues of that ending arc. Maybe you just skip to the last two. Well, you're, you bought this regardless because you had no idea. And now it's being rushed back for a second printing because people are like, oh, crap, I didn't realize this was ending. Now I have to see it and I have to read it. Oh, by the way, it was sold out. So you couldn't. So I, I think that this is a brilliant move. I hope that this is actually something that we see a little bit more. And there's no, and there's no outrage, right? Because this was the creative team's decision. It wasn't canceled by image. This was the creative team saying, we're done, don't tell anybody. And it worked out. At least I think it did. I think that this is the perfect way to do something like this. And I hope that other creative teams decide to follow suit on this. I think this is a brilliant move by Kirkman and a series of many brilliant moves on his part. Now, here's something that's caused a little bit of a stir on social media, and that is the casting for Ariel and the live-action Little Mermaid. It's going to be Halle Bailey, who is an R&B singer. She's one half of Chloe and Haley, in case you didn't know. And she is also one of the cast members on Grownish. So it's not like she has no acting chops whatsoever, by the way. And we know that direct. We, we know in the report from Variety that John Marshall, the directors, met with talent for like two months before saying that it was, you know, pretty clear that Halle Bailey was going to be the choice. Now, for well, let me get this out of the way first, too. Melissa McCarthy and talks to play Ursula in the movie, and we've also got fans thinking, and maybe this is part of the problem, okay? Maybe fans had their hearts set on Zendaya, and I get it. I mean, she did. She's she's been in so many... You know, she's had so many memorable roles already, you know, being in Spider-Man and Euphoria now in HBO, which she's doing a very good job with. And, you know, when we get ideas set in our head as some fans sometimes, and maybe I'm using fans in quotation marks for some people, but, you know, people get things set in their minds of the, this is what I want. And if I don't get this, then I'm going to be upset about it. Well, you know, some of the best things that we've gotten are, bec- are some things that you never either A, never would have expected, or B, you go, you know what, I don't know if that was the right move. And it turned out to be the right move. And I'm not going to say the names that, you know, always get said in this situation when somebody gets cast and, you know, fans aren't sure, and then all of a sudden they come out and knock it out of the park. And I'm not saying she's absolutely going to knock it out of the park. I have no idea. I haven't seen her in enough. I know she can sing. At least there's that, right? Ariel being able to sing is kind of important, right? So I think that that is a is a major plus and a, and a step in the right direction. 
So we've got that going for us. And don't don't even talk to me about the hair, please. Please don't talk to me about the hair. They do wonderful things with wigs and hair dye these days. I don't know how many times I have to say that. I've seen the whole she doesn't have red hair tweets more than once, and I don't know why we can't understand this. I don't know why we don't get this. I'm not even going to bring up the other argument, by the way, because I think it's ridiculous, and, and I don't think that we need to give it a voice. So I'm not even going to bring that up. All I'm saying is is that I don't know that she's going to be great. I don't know that she's going to be terrible. All I know is this is a huge unknown, but they did their due diligence here, and they searched, and Halle is what they're going to go with. By the way, I love the way that Twitter thought it was Halle Berry. It was cast at first as the little mermaid as, as Ariel that those were some hilarious tweets so so Twitter I do love you for that sometimes that that was a lot of fun but I mean the quote-unquote outrage and all this stuff can we just stop with this let's see how this works out you want to be a, if she ends up being terrible and you want to be outraged about it for that reason fine if maybe you just don't think this needs to be made in live action either and that's a valid argument Maybe they didn't, this doesn't need to be done at all. But we don't know how good she's going to be until we see it. And that's something that we really need to start thinking about more and more. And not just this, but other things. Quickly, before I wrap this up, I want to talk about J.A. Bayona being tapped to direct the first two episodes of Amazon's Lord of the Rings series, which is going to be, which of course, reported by Deadline. We know that this is going to be before Fellowship but after the events of The Hobbit, so we do know that. Now, if the name sounds familiar, Bayona was also the director of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Maybe you're going, well, I didn't like Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. This is going to suck. Well, here, he also directed the first two episodes of Penny Dreadful. Did you like that on Showtime? There was also a movie called The Orphanage that he did with Guillermo del Toro, which got you know a huge standing ovation at, at a film festival not too long ago. He'll also be the ex- executive producer, by the way, alongside of Belen Atienza. So there's that. And by the way, he didn't write it either because the scripts are being done by J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay. So if your argument is, well, he's not going to be a good writer, well, it's not being written by him, so what does it matter? All I know is, is that when you do a movie like Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, you have to have this... You know, you're you're dealing with dinosaurs, you're dealing with your human characters as well, and there's a lot going on there. And you've got to be able to give striking visuals in a movie like that, which I think it had. Whether I don't care what you you know if you loved this the script or not, it was visually stunning, as these movies tend to be. You need Lord of the Rings to be visually stunning, so that's why you go out and get somebody like this to do your Lord of the Rings TV series. Now we don't know how many episodes there's going to be. We just we know he's going to be in part of the first two, so we know there's going to be at least two episodes to this thing, right? Maybe we find out more at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Maybe we won't. But again, I think this is another wait-and-see deal, and I'm not sure that this series is going to be made or broken by who the director of the first two episodes is. We don't know who's going to be able to direct, who's going to be directing the rest. Maybe he will direct more than the first couple of episodes, but we are in a wait-and-see mode here. And, I mean, let me know what you think. At Down and Nerdy 757. Shoot me a message on Twitter and let me know what you think. It's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about The Magicians, Lumberjanes, and more with writer Lila Sturgis. It's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
This is writer C.S. Pacat, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's the last day of WonderCon 2019, but it's, there's also a big anniversary going on right now. We're going to talk about that and a bunch more with the wonderful Lila Sturgis. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? If maybe a little exhausted because it's Sunday afternoon. It's a Sunday. It's a Sunday afternoon, but I'm here. I'm present. I'm ready to talk about comics. And the fifth anniversary of Lumberjanes, which you've been a part of. So what has the fan reaction been like here at WonderCon to five years? Well, we did a fifth year anniversary panel here at WonderCon a little earlier today, and the room was packed, and it was very celebratory. We had Lumberjanes cookies, we had a special fifth anniversary badge, and someone at Boom put together this amazing video of people um, all over talking about what Lumberjanes means to them, and by the end, all of us on stage were just sobbing. It was kind of, it was kind of cruel to us, really, to just put us all up on stage and then make us cry like that was the goal to make us cry and it worked how did you realize becoming a part of this lumberjanes world just how important this book was to fans and what makes these characters just so relatable for everybody I think I knew that it was a popular book when I got asked to write the original graphic novel. Um, I don't think I realized exactly how much it meant to people, especially young people, and how the extent to which um, kids relate to the book and relate to the characters. And whenever I do a signing, you know, I always ask them, What's, who's your favorite Lumberjane? And they all have an answer, and they all relate to one of the girls. And I think that's what makes it so powerful, is that these kids are very relatable, and kids see themselves in at least one of the girls, or see different parts of different aspects of themselves in you know various uh, characters. And I think that really, because the characters are so real and well drawn, both character-wise and artistically, that. Uh, that people can just relate to them really strongly, and that's what makes the book special. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, The Inferno Compass was the first original graphic novel in the series. What was the pressure there kind of like for you bringing in a brand new story into this continuity a little bit? Well, I was very fortunate for two reasons. The first is that when I was brought in, they said, well, you know, we kind of want to do a story about Mal and Molly, and we were maybe thinking about this. So go take a little time, think about how you would do that story and come back to us. Um, and the second part was they needed me to do it really, really quickly, so I didn't have time to really think about it too hard, and I think that was kind of a blessing in disguise because it was like, okay, you're hired, go write it right now. And I was like, <laughs> okay. So uh, there really was no time to kind of go, hmm, what does this mean? Or like, what kind of pressure am I feeling right now? I was like, no, okay, page one, panel one, let's go. So does that mean you have a favorite, maybe Mal or Molly, or maybe somebody else that you'd like to work with at some point? Well, the first book, Infernal Compass, is about focuses on Mal and Molly. The book I'm writing right now, The Shape of Friendship, focuses on Joe and April. And I think the character that I enjoy writing the most has to be Ripley, just because she's so much fun, just this big ball of energy. And I think the character that I relate to the most is Molly, because when I was that age, I was that shy kid who um, had a hard time coming out of her shell. So when I think about Molly, she's the one that I relate to the best. Now you get to tackle another very popular property in The Magicians. You're doing Alice's story coming up. So how did that all kind of come about? 
The way that Alice's story happened was that I just got a call from Sierra Han at Boom Studios who just asked, would I be interested in doing this book? Just completely out of the blue. I'd never even spoken to her before. She doesn't remember why she called me in particular. <laughs> um, so it's kind of a mystery. I think it must be just fate. But I was a big fan of the books. Um, and when they asked me if I would pitch it, I went back and reread the first novel just to see what I thought of it after, you know, it had been eight years since it came out. And I thought, well, it's a really great book, but I kept coming back to the character of Alice, who I found really fascinating. And I want to know what was going on in her head throughout all of this story. So I feel like we know what is going on with Quentin, who is the protagonist of the book. And I thought, well, if we're going to adapt this, let's do something different. Let's just tell the same exact story. Let's try and tell that story from someone else's perspective. And doing it from a woman's perspective, to me, felt very natural. So that's how the book came about. And then I, I went back to them and said, hey, I want to do this, but I really want to do it from the girl's perspective. And they were like, great, let's do that. There was no pushback at all. It was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. And how nice is it to be working with a much younger Alice than you would maybe be dealing with in the books or even in the TV series as well? When we first meet Alice, she is eight. Uh, so we get to see a little bit of her childhood. And then we also see her when she's in break bills and after. So we get a span of her young life where we get to see her sort of growing up and trying to figure out the things that are expected of her and the things that she expects from herself and the consequences of the choices that she makes. We got to see some preview pages not too long ago. When you first got the look at the preview pages for the art, what was your reaction to that? This is something that, you know, you always say because this is the right answer to the question is always, oh, I was totally blown away by the pages, right? You never say, oh, they were fine, you know. They weren't for me, but I'm sure someone would like them. Um, but no, the P.S. Back is just a phenomenal artist, and he really captures all of the nuances of emotion that I was trying to get across in this script. Um, when I'm writing a script, I tend to... I write a full script, but I don't write a very detailed script because I like to give the artist room to move. And so I follow the dictum of, um, you know, in every panel you get an action and an emotion. And so I describe what's happening in a panel and I tell how everyone in the panel is feeling. And I let it go at that. And P.S. has this remarkable ability to take those actions and emotions and combine them in ways that really bring them to life. And that's something that's really special about his art style. Normally you have fans of a book, then the book gets adapted to the comic. Or fans of a show, and the show gets adapted to a comic. Now you kind of have to deal with both. So how do you, do you kind of balance that? Are you kind of hoping fans of one or the other or both will, will be drawn to this book for one reason or another? Obviously, we hope that everyone is going to love it, for sure. I, a lot of the people that I've talked to, especially women that I talk to, they're like, oh, I love that you're doing this from Alice's point of view. Like, they don't want to say, we don't like Quentin. <laughs> but they're like, we love Alice. Let's just put it that way. Um, so there are definitely a lot of Alice fans out there who are excited about the book, both um, coming from the novel and from the TV show, which is funny because I've never watched the TV show. It's, my, it's different, but good. It's different, and I've heard it's very good. I haven't watched it because I didn't want to confuse myself about the characters of the story. I just want, I wanted to be true to the novel in the sense of, like, the novel was 
quote unquote what actually happened and I was right. weaving my story in and around that um, because for some reason like canonicity is very important to me and I want like this really happened so That's I have good. to tell That's the good. story the way it actually happened so before I let you go Lila there's been a, a, really a big move in the last couple of years about representation in comics it's been a real hot button issue is there still something out there or a group out there that you feel is not either not being represented enough or not being represented well enough I think that we've made some strides in diversity and, and representation and visibility for some marginalized groups. Um, I would like to see a lot more representation of uh, people of color still. I would love to see much more representation of disabled people. I'd like to see more representation of fat people. Um, we're doing a little bit better with trans representation, but we still don't really talk about non-binary identities enough. There's so much, it's such a big world, and there are so many different kinds of people in it, and everybody deserves the spotlight. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And so I think that there's room to tell everyone's stories, give everyone a chance to, to feel seen, to feel heard, and to know that there is someone like them out there who is telling their story. One more for you. What's been your favorite interaction that you've had with a fan one-on-one -on -one at the con so far? Oh, that's easy. When um, I, we were signing earlier, uh, a woman came by and she was very nervous. And she said, you know, I just wanted to tell you how exciting it is that you are working on this book because I have a six-year-old daughter who's trans and it just means so much to me that you're doing it. I met her again outside the con and we talked and I just was so thrilled to see this mom who was loving and supporting her trans daughter and um, we both cried and we hugged and it was it was very emotional and sweet and just thinking about this mom and how she's raising her daughter in a world that's going to be so much different from the world that I was raised in it makes me fills me with joy. Now I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Okay. You've got Alice's story coming out. You've got more Lumberjanes coming. When are we going to get our hands on these things? Alice's story comes out July 10th. Lumberjanes, The Shape of Friendship comes out November let's say 29th, something like that. Whatever the Wednesday is around that day. I want to say that's correct. But uh, check, you know, check your copy of previews in a few months and we'll see. See, that's a great way to get your Christmas shopping started. That's right. They make great gifts. There you go. Lila Sturgis, thank you so much for joining me here at WonderCon. Thank you so much. One of the things I really loved about talking to Lila Sturgis at WonderCon is her passion for the Lumberjanes Project and also the magician's Alice's story, which if you were a fan of the Love Grossman novels, of the magicians. I think you'll definitely love this. If you're a fan of the show, it's de it's a great way to see a different perspective on the story, especially if you haven't read the books yet. So make sure you're grabbing that at your local shops on July the 10th, or of course you can also get it in bookstores on July the 16th. If you want more information, go to boom-studios.com and you can get that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you so much to Lila Sturgis for joining me this week. If you want more information on us and all of our Comic-Con news that we've been posting, by the way, to get you ready for San Diego Comic-Con this year, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You want to follow us and like us on social media as well to keep up with our coverage at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.